Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn, and this week we're trying to make sense of Saudi Arabia. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered the arrests of hundreds of Saudis, including high-ranking royal family members, as part of a so-called anti-corruption drive. Not only that, but Lebanon is now without a leader after Prime Minister Hariri unexpectedly resigned on Sunday. He delivered the news in the Saudi capital Riyadh and has not returned to Lebanon since. Politics is never simple, but this seems more of a mess than usual. So to help us understand what's happened is John Ultraman, our Middle East Program Director and Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy. First, it's unclear exactly what's happening. I've seen reports of 208 people arrested. I've seen reports of 500 people arrested. I've seen reports that the government has ambitions to take in $100 billion in ill-gotten gains. I've seen reports that the government is seeking $800 billion in ill-gotten gains. I don't know where this is all right now. I don't know where it's going. The government has promised that this will all become clear in the fullness of time. But right now, it's pretty confusing, and there's no clear list of who is involved or what they've been accused of. A lot of the charges seem to be complaints about the way Saudi Arabia has operated for decades and decades, that if you want to do business in Saudi Arabia, you need people who represent prominent business families. You need people who are either in the royal family or connected to the royal family. And this is another way that oil revenue gets redistributed in the kingdom and that the the economic system basically serves the political system, that there's patronage and the patronage is what keeps the politics moving. What the crown prince seems to be doing is changing that system, how he's going to do it, what the consequences are economically and politically are still unclear. And uh, people have compared this to a Xi Jinping style, yes, it's anti-corruption, but also that serves as kind of a, a, a power consolidation. Uh, does it does it look like that way to you? It doesn't seem coincidental that the owners of the three largest media companies in Saudi Arabia have been swept up. It certainly does seem connected to a desire to, to do away with a system whereby a lot of the children and grandchildren of the founder of Saudi Arabia, Abdelaziz ibn Saud, used to have a lot of businesses and a lot of business opportunities. And it seems to be consolidating toward King Salman and his oldest son. And that would represent a lot of people losing their spots. It's almost like a game of musical chairs when you go from having 100 chairs to three chairs. Um, There's a lot of people who were trying to make the system work and trying to benefit from the system the way people had done it for years. And suddenly the rules seem to be changing. And was there anyone that you were surprised was swept up in this that maybe was a more powerful figure than than you expected? I'm surprised they're doing it in general. Um, And I'm especially surprised that some of the technocrats who had been involved in reform efforts in Saudi Arabia for years were swept up. Two of the ones who I was most surprised by were Ibrahim Lassaf, the former minister of finance, and Adel Faqih, the, um, the f- 
person who was Minister of Labor did a bang-up job and was promoted to Minister of Economy and Planning. Uh, he led much of the engagement with McKinsey, which in turn has done a lot of the 2030 planning. Um, I think one of the dangers that the current prince has to worry about is whether he's going to make it hard for people to give him critical advice. Uh, he has very ambitious plans. He is not doing it based on a lot of personal experience. He's 32. He was helping his father for about a decade, but he doesn't have experience in a lot of things where he's he's uh, charging out. I think you can't really substitute consultant's judgment for your own. Uh, and I worry that a lot of Saudis who might be able, who are still loyal and might be able to say, slow down, have you thought about that? We tried this, it didn't work, you have to worry about this. Who can help him with the politics of it um, are either currently in the Ritz-Carlton with no ability to leave or so intimidated that they won't tell him what they really think. And to my mind, one of the highest forms of loyalty is to give constructive advice, even when it might hurt you, because you think it's in the, in the country's interest. And I, I just wonder, as we project this forward for the next several months and years, whether the crown prince is going to get the kind of critical advice that he needs from people who, who want him to succeed. And by wanting him to succeed, they think that he should consider a wider range of options than, than might be his first instinct. And um, what has been interesting here, when we talk about reform in Saudi Arabia, it's always couched in terms of like, look, this happens slowly and this country you know, moves slowly. Th this doesn't seem slow. This seems fast. And I guess, what are the risks then there? You're absolutely right that the, the, there has been a decision to abandon incrementalism a sense that they had tried to do elite negotiations, they tried to do all these things slowly, and you just have to rip off the Band-Aid. The problem is that in haste you make mistakes. The problem is that in haste you alienate too many people at once. The problem is the possibility that either people who you need to motivate and mobilize decide to retreat and just become passive, or you create a, a critical mass that can rise up against you. I don't know what opposition would look like in Saudi Arabia. It's not a place with mass politics. I don't think you're going to see people in the street. But I have to think that a number of people say, if, if you want to do something, now might be the only time in 40 years you'll get a chance. So if you're on the edge, you have to be willing to, to move now. I also have seen reports about people uh, moving their money overseas and trying to protect it. And uh, it seems to me that the part of his plan is getting Saudis to invest in Saudi Arabia. And if a lot of the people who you need to really invest and to double down on the future of the kingdom say, I'm worried about being next, I'm gonna double down on my family and put my money in Switzerland or, or Asia or somewhere else, that ends up setting you back instead of moving you forward. In terms of US influence, and, and U.S. interests, uh, they seem to have thrown their eggs in with Mohammed bin Salman. And as long as that is the case, I suppose it, it does work out then for the U.S. Well, I think U.S.-Saudi policy has been 
in a, a strange little place. Um, the president seems to be personally fond of Mohammed bin Salman. There seems to be a close personal relationship between Jared Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman. We've seen much more measured things coming out of the State Department. We've seen more measured things coming out of the National Security Council. And I think, frankly, we've seen more measured things coming out of the Defense Department. So I think while the president may feel a, a, a personal stake in Mohammed bin Salman's success, it's unclear to me what U.S. government policy is. And this is one of those instances where you have to wonder when the president tweets something, does the government consider that a statement of policy or not? And had you asked me a year ago, I would have said if the president says that it, it's policy. But having watched this administration operate for the last year, it seems to me that it becomes a suggestion of a possible policy, but it's not, it's not dispositive at all. And I think it's confusing for us and it's confusing for other governments because it's never clear where this is all where this is and where it's going. Talking about a, a related subject that I guess could be missed when you're looking at everything that's happening in Saudi Arabia, but uh, Lebanon. The prime minister resigned this week. What's going on there? What kind of precipitated this? Well, nobody knows what's happening. There are reports in Lebanon he's under house arrest in Saudi Arabia. Um, the uh, President Macron just went and, and, and saw him. Uh, or saw Mohammed bin Salman, who was concerned about what's happening in Lebanon. Uh, they advised their citizens and governments of other GCC states advised their citizens to go out. The initial speculation was that they had pushed him to strike harder against Hezbollah, which remains quite powerful and probably was even more powerful than the prime minister. And he said, I can't do that. I have to think of Lebanon. I have to think of my own position. I have to think of, of the correlation of forces, and I'll have the power to, to strike back at Hezbollah. And the speculation was, I said, okay, so move aside. What they intend to do about Hezbollah and Iranian influence in Lebanon remains very unclear. But frankly, there have been a number of steps that the Saudis have taken, be it getting into Yemen, be it getting into a confrontation with Qatar, where the first step is clear, but it's unclear what the end game is. It's unclear what victory would look like. Um, there might be an initial plan for a first step, but I think we've increasingly seen a Saudi government that rather than being risk averse, says, well, let's just shake up the pieces on the board and let's see what we can play with from there. And I don't think anybody knows where the where an Iranian-Saudi confrontation in Lebanon would go. There's speculation the Israelis are on board. Um, again, what this actually looks like, what effect it has, whether it has the desired effect, I don't know. Mohammed bin Salman is still looking for his first really big win. He has done a lot of things, but I think it's hard to say he has a real big win on the board, and, and maybe Lebanon is where he's looking to do it. I think other people have tried to have big wins in Lebanon, and in Lebanon, often nobody wins. Right, and and I mean, opening like you said, there's there's the conflict with Qatar, there's the the massive conflict in Yemen, it doesn't seem smart to be opening up another place where you could 
like you said, not win or, or be well. And you a have there. you have you know certainly a cold war going on in Iraq, which is sometimes not so cold, and you have this internal turmoil, uh, which involves large parts of the family, which traditionally people are very careful about opening up rifts in the family. So there's, there's a lot of things going on at once. He's not risk averse. Uh, and I guess the question is, is he reckless? And that's something that only only time will tell. Um, a final question. I just wanted to get at kind of the, the big picture of um, this is something, obviously, this is a region you, you looked at your whole life in terms of scale of what's going on in Saudi Arabia only right for now. for the last 30 years, really. <laughs> in terms of scale, what, what do you consider this, this looking like? How tumultuous is it? How big is this? This is pretty big. This is certainly the biggest thing in decades in the kingdom. There was turmoil when, when King Saud was uh, relieved of power by the family in the early 1960s, uh, and King Faisal came in. Um, there certainly was the Arab Cold War, where the Saudis led a monarchical opposition to the socialist Arab republics led by Egypt. This, to me, feels like the governance equivalent of the oil shock in 1973, that the intention is to change the way the system works, the same way that, that oil prices shot up and Saudi Arabia suddenly became a very, very wealthy place. I think this has a similar internal ambition to reorder how the place works. Uh, it might be successful. It might be unsuccessful. I think with a lot of these things, there are more ways for it to fail than for it to succeed. But the feeling of the, the people around the crown prince I've spoken to, and presumably the crown prince, uh, is we just have to shock the system. We have to shake it up. We have to, to rouse it from its slumber. This is how we'll do it. And uh, with energy and determination, we'll succeed. And I think they have a chance. But frankly, it's, it's not a certainty. And that was John Alterman closing us out for this week. As always, if you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please let me know. I'm on email at cquinn at csis.org, or you can find me on Twitter. See you next week. Thanks for listening.